Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Soho Bites, the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I must apologise for the condition of my voice. I overdid it slightly at a loud gig at the 100 Club last week and that, coupled with a slight cold, has left this temporary glitch in the matrix. Normal service will be resumed shortly. Soho has, of course, been a destination for immigrants from all over the world for many years and as a consequence, all the world's major religions, and most minor ones too, have been represented here at one time or another. The Protestant Huguenots of France, Irish Catholics, East European Jews and even the followers of Lord Krishna have all left their mark in this small area. And so, this episode of Soho Bites is our God Special. In the first half of the programme we'll be hearing about the late John Hester, who was the rector of St Anne's Church on Dean Street from 1963 to 75, a time in which more than 50 strip clubs and clip joints operated in his parish. How does a man of the cloth go about his duties? in that sort of environment. In the second half, I'm joined by another vicar, the Reverend Liz Clutterbuck, vicar of the Emmanuel Church in Holloway. I'll be talking to Liz about a well-known Soho film with religious undertones, Emmerich Pressburger's Miracle in Soho from 1957. And at Soho Bites, we of course welcome people of all faiths and none, so please stay tuned. The Church of St Anne's on Dean Street was destroyed during a World War II bombing raid. All that stood when the Luftwaffe had completed their mission, that night in 1940, was the church tower. But the parish remained, and when the Reverend John Hester took over as the Vicar of St Anne's in 1963, the same year, incidentally, that the small world of Sammy Lee was released, worship was being conducted in one room of an adjoining building. John Hester must have cut an unusual figure in his day, a vicar without a church in an area known primarily for its prostitution and striptease bars, but who's committed to the people of Soho and became well-known and respected. By the way, please don't confuse John Hester with the pervy vicar Edwin Young, as portrayed by David Williams in the 2013 Paul Raymond biopic The Look of Love. They are two very different people. A church does now stand on the site of the old St Anne's, and a few weeks ago I went along there to meet up with the Reverend John Hester's son, Alex, to find out a little bit more about this unusual man. My name's Alex Hester, and my father was rector of Soho and priest in charge of St Paul's Covent Garden 
through the uh, 60s and into the 70s, which was um, quite a period in Soho's history. Born in Hartlepool, uh, in a little terraced house, his father was the town clerk, and at some point he was called to the priesthood and he was initially, I believe, a curate in Southall, and then I think a chaplain to, to a bishop and got to travel in Europe. His views were liberal and could be perceived as ahead of their time. Things like allowing openly gay people to be priests, encouraging women priests. But actually, I think that that philosophy would go right back to the beginning of Christianity. So I, I don't think it was anything new. I just think that we, we have a perception sometimes of the institutional church and some of the people who would, you know, they would claim that they are Christians and yet they can be in the most, un, you know, unchristian people that you meet. He had a love of the theatre that he discovered at an early age. And so he, he would say it was good fortune that he got the opportunity to be here. But there's no doubt that his love of theatre, his love of London, would have made him a great candidate, and, and that was probably recognised, and so he was given the opportunity. We all think of the swinging 60s and the 70s as extraordinary periods of popular culture and uh, Soho would have been such a, um, a vibrant place. And I'm not a historian of Soho, but, but I know that actually it's always had that extraordinary blend and mix of people. The industries that were here, the proximity to places like the West End, to the city, um, that it, it was a magnet to all sorts of people, all sorts of cultures. And I think that that was one of the things he loved best about this, was the mix of humanity and how, in the main, they got on extremely well. So the different religious representations here, the diversity of, of industries that went on here, from entertainment, from strip bars, uh, to still manufacturing. So to have that extraordinary kaleidoscope of people here would have just been brilliant. So I th this, this was his heyday. If you think about, gosh, how many, how many theatres are there in the West End? If he was essentially the chaplain to all of those, then the turnover of actors and, and notable people was extraordinary and he, was, he would have been a friend to them in a professional sense, in that sense of supporting people, being there for them, pastoral care. But with that, you do strike up personal bonds with them and there were a lot of lasting friendships that came out of that. So Peter Sellers was one. I mean, Dad was, was very close to him and was godfather to um, his daughter, Victoria. That absolute binder He's still that girl of mine Yes, my boo-boo has slipped off But it wasn't always a happy relationship. I think Peter Sellers is a brilliant man, but could be a really difficult man. And actually, sometimes you take that out on the people who are closest to you, so my, my dad could get the brunt of his frustrations and angers, but they were close. 
I know that I think my dad, for instance, even flew out to the States one time when, when, when Peter was going through a particularly bad patch and just needed somebody with him, somebody probably who wasn't part of his professional sphere, to have a friend there. At his funeral, he elected to play something like Glenn Miller's In the Mood. And people thought, great, this is an uplifting tune, uh, wonderful. It turned out that Peter says, I hate that tune, I never want to hear it till I'm dead. He loved to tell stories about his time here. Um, some stories, I remember I was sent from the room because they were inappropriate for my young ears. Si tu as une guitare. A story that, you know, I vividly remember, and then I read my dad's book, and it's slightly different in his book, so I don't know which version you're going to get. He was the secretary to the Actors' Church Union, and I believe that there was an opposite number in France, and I understood it as being the Bishop of Rouen, but I think it may have been Abbé Guy de Fatto, who had previously been a musician. He came to London as he had done before, and my dad took him on his rounds. I think he was supposed to be chaplain to 50 strip clubs, as well as all the West End theatres and London film studios. Si tu as une batterie. So they turned up at one of the strip clubs. There was apparently a problem. People were worried and anxious. Uh, he said, well, what's the problem? He said, the saxophonist is sick, and how can you have a strip band without a sax player? To which Guy then stepped in saying, well, I play clarinet, so uh, I can play sax. And, and so he stepped in. Later in the evening, my, my dad, you know, was dressed in his cassock and dog collar. Someone came up to him and asked, was he a real priest? Uh, to which he said yes, and he said, well, are you Anglican or, uh, or Catholic, Protestant or Catholic? He said, well, I'm the, the Anglican rector of Soho. And he said, well, that, no surprise, because you, you wouldn't find a good Catholic at a, in, in a place like this. To which my dad took you know, great pleasure in pointing out the senior cleric of the Catholic Church in northern France playing sax that night. <laughs> I was in my dad's study and I could see this gilded letterhead saying Paul Raymond Publications and, uh, and I read this sort of opening paragraph and it was from Paul Raymond to my father. This was in, I think, probably the early 90s. And it just said, you know, dear John, thank you so much for all your support at this you know, terrible time. Uh, I don't know how I could get through it without my friends like you. And it was after Paul Raymond's daughter had died, uh, and I had no idea of their connection. And, you know, Paul Raymond was such a significant figure within Soho that obviously their paths had crossed. But actually, there had been this lasting friendship by that point, which would have been at least 30 years. That's the sort of, that's an illustration of where there are these private and personal relationships. And my knowledge of Paul Raymond, his public persona, uh, 
his professional um, achievements, etc., were one thing, but actually, Dad just knew him as a, as a fellow resident of of Soho and a friend. And I think he was really helpful to my dad, giving him access to all the clubs. And I think he was uh, he cared for the people who worked for him uh, at his strip bars, etc. It's fantastic being here in St Anne's. It's extraordinary seeing pictures of what the site was like when my dad was here, and it was a bomb site. The tower remained, and I think most of the ground was being used as a car park by NCP car parks. And there were great plans that he commissioned to build a new church here. There's a beautiful model of, of what they proposed, but basically it was a glass church. They wanted to have this transparent building that could be seen into from from the streets of Soho. Sadly, it never got built because actually at the time there wasn't the congregation to fill it and I don't think my father could justify the expense in going that way in a church that would may have been empty. I think it would have probably been a visible cultural hub for, for this part of Soho which is quite densely packed. That's such an important role for the church to play in communities anyway. Um, and to do it in a building for its time, I think that would have been a great asset. Thank you to Alex Hester for meeting up with me at St Anne's Dean Street to talk about his late father. The church that now stands on Dean Street was completed in 1991 and was built with money mostly raised by the Soho Society. As Alex said, the glass-sided church that was envisaged by his father was never built. But if you'd like a sense of that vision, of the church that never was, I've posted a picture of the architect's model of the proposed church on the show notes for this episode. You can find this, as well as some photographs of John Hester in his 60s heyday, at SohoBitesPodcast.com. John Hester's book that Alex referred to is called Soho Is My Parish and was published in 1970. Unfortunately, it's now out of print, but I managed to find a second-hand copy online and was very struck by a particular passage. The passage encapsulates Soho and the Reverend Hester's attitude to it. It's read here by a friend of the show and jobbing actor who happened to be walking by, Stephen Ventura. Soho is a catchment area for sexual and emotional deviants of every kind. Men and women, boys and girls, and something resembling a third sex in between, seek, in the anonymity of Soho, a chance to relate to people in a way which they feel is denied them by the oppressive, judgmental, scapegoat-seeking society outside. A pastor in Soho has an unusual opportunity of observing those who suffer in this way and of applying the compassionate strength of Christ to any who will accept his help. The knowledge that one is not alone can be an immense help. This is one reason why people come to Soho, where birds of one's own feather can be found flocking together. Society can be cruel in its rejection, like animals, with a malformed member of the clan. The church's duty is to proclaim that when society rejects a person, Christ does not. Christ's love is expressed mainly through his Christians. Oh, 
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There is an island in the great city of London, a little foreign island called Soho. Italians live there and Greeks. French, Spaniards and Germans, Czechs and Hungarians, Maltese, Cypriots, Hindus and Mohammedans. There's probably an Eskimo or two. And certainly a few Scotsmen. Those are the opening lines of today's featured film, 1957's Miracle in Soho. The miracle, the miracle. As we hear that opening elegy to a harmonious multicultural Soho, we're treated to a panoramic sweep of the London skyline. 1957 style, before the camera comes to a stop on an area we're told is Soho. This is the last we see of the real Soho because the action of the film is set almost entirely in a fictional street called St Anthony's Lane, which is in fact an enormous set designed by Carmen Dillon, built at Pinewood Studios. Written by Emmerich Pressburger and directed by Julian Ames, the film is shot in vibrant Eastman colour and is a romantic tale about two very different people who somehow fall in love. Michael Morgan, played by John Gregson, is a member of a road gang, a team of horny-handed working men who travel from street to street throughout London, digging up and replacing tarmac. As unlikely as this may sound, because there are never, ever, ever roadworks in Soho, the gang arrives at the start of the film to dig up St Anthony's Lane. Julia Gozzi, played by Belinda Lee, is the youngest daughter of an Italian family who live on the lane. For the Gozzi family, the arrival of the road gang merely adds to the chaos of what is already a chaotic and momentous week, as they're in the final stages of making their arrangements to emigrate to Canada. Julia, like the rest of the family, is a devout Catholic, God-fearing and virtuous. Michael, on the other hand, has a reputation as a libertine and a user of women. As he travels from street to street throughout London, he leaves a trail of broken hearts behind him, as evidenced by the arrival of the angry husband of one of Michael's conquests early in the film. This was the first film Emmerich Pressburger made after his split from Michael Powell, but the source material had been around since he wrote the novel upon which it was based, The Miracle in St Anthony's Lane, in 1934. It had been under options several times before to different producers, and by the time 1957 rolled around, it had arguably become a little out of date. The film is not without merit, though, and there are some nice set pieces and some great performances, including those from the very young Ian Bannon and Rosalie Crutchley as Julia's siblings. Barbara Archer knows how to wear a tight sweater and is charmingly saucy as Gladys, the barmaid and prospective sister-in-law to Julia. Billy Whitelaw is touching and dignified in her one scene as one of Michael's discarded women, and Cyril Cusack is possibly the true star of the film as Mr Bishop, the local busybody with a kind heart. If you ever listen to the Kermode and Mayo film show on BBC Radio 5 Live, you may recognise the name of the Reverend Liz Clutterbuck. She's an occasional contributor to the show and a member of the Wittertainment Clergy Corner. 
She also happens to be, in real life, an actual vicar, and I invited her onto the show to discuss Miracle in Soho. It was a very nice, sort of quiet Sunday afternoon film. It wasn't very taxing. The use of the word miracle in the title is perhaps an exaggeration, but it was it was fun. It was a nice it was a nice film to watch. We have to be very careful about spoilers because there is a miracle in the film, but it happens right at the end. <laughs> I think the miracle refers to something else, which we'll, we'll probably go on to yeah. later. Could you uh, just set the story up for us? Tell us where we are. I mean, clearly, we're supposed to be in Soho. So um, the film opens with a lovely sort of panorama shot of London, or they try and locate famous bits of London in it. It's quite difficult. And they do a big job of selling St Anthony's Lane in Soho as one of the little villages that London has. Um, and there's sort of Italian children running the streets and games playing. And um, you wouldn't know that you're in central London, I think, from the way that they've managed to do the set. That's absolutely a set, isn't it? It's absolutely. all done in the studio. Yeah. Um, no sign of sort of real London there at all. Um, and it's a, sort of a bit of bygone Soho. It's sort of this a, almost idyllic, multicultural bit of London that probably never quite existed in that way. It was written by Emmerich Pressburger, one of the uh, Palin Pressburger, one half of Palin Pressburger. And as I was looking into the, the background of the film, it turns out it was actually written in 1934 before Emmerich Pressburger moved to the UK, which strikes me as slightly odd. I mean, even in 1957, that depiction of Soho seems to be out of date. Mm. Do you think the film suffers for it not being a particularly realistic depiction of Soho? Or I think given that Soho is in the title of the film, I don't think very much is actually made of the fact that it is Soho. You could almost be anywhere. Given that the, the premise is that a, a road team turn up to resurface the road, well, that road really could be in any part of London, any part of the UK. The fact that it's Soho seems almost an aside. So tell us about this road team. Why do they come into the film? Um, so there's sort of consternation on St Anthony's Lane as it emerges that the road has got to be um, dug up and resurfaced. They make a lot about the fact that they, they won't have to do this again for 25 years. 1982. Which, 1982, yeah, which um, makes you feel old or young one way or the other. And uh, so there's consternation from sort of local traders that people aren't going to come to their shops and there's going to be the noise and the dirt and then also these sort of not quite totally civilised men who are going to be the road team doing the work and might be a danger to the moral fibre of this street. There's one particular guy who uh, is the kind of lead of the film, Michael, played by John Gregson. And he has a reputation, it turns out, for being a bit of a Lothario. And everywhere he goes in London... He meets girls, and the following week, when he leaves that street to go to another street, he leaves these girls mm. behind. Oh, great performance, I thought. A little cameo, almost, from Billy Whitelaw. Oh, really? When he arrives in Soho, he walks into the pub, and there's a girl waiting for him who's uh -huh. from his last posting in Moorgate. Yeah, so far away from Soho. <laughs> so far away. Hello, stranger. Hello, Maggie. Sit down. Haven't seen you since last Friday. We finished in your street last Friday. But we can still see each other. Remember the last thing I said on Friday night? You said goodnight, baby. I said goodbye, baby. Why should it be goodbye? Look, 
I told you how it would be. I didn't try to fool you. I never fool a girl. They fool themselves. This is how it was with us. You can't say I didn't tell you. You said I was the nicest girl in Margaret. So you were. Now I'm working in Soho. Did you talk about the casting, actually? Because, yeah, sure. um So we've got um, the two leads, are John Gregson and Belinda Lee. They are the, the couple who fall in love with the... Is it kind of a rom-com without the com, in a way? Yeah. What do you think of them, their, their casting? Were you convinced by them? Um, I was probably more convinced by Belinda than John Gregson. Um, although I just think John Gregson's character doesn't have an awful lot of depth to him. I think that was my biggest problem, really, with the film, entirely given that... Um, Julia Belinda Lee's character is meant to be falling in love with her in this mad, passionate love affair, which in the end stops her from joining her family in Canada. I don't find Michael a believable enough character that this, you know, family woman would do that. In what way? You don't think he's hot enough, as the kids say? Um, I don't know that it was about hotness. I just... He didn't seem to me like enough of a Lothario to really merit the attention he was getting. I didn't find him as believable, uh, a sort of a heartthrob, I guess, as the actor who plays Tom, who ends up getting injured yeah. in the course of Oh, he's a very good-looking young Yeah, that I probably would have believed more. Michael just seemed to have sort of done the rounds quite a lot, had all of these women, and I didn't really feel any kind of emotional connection with him. I think even um, Julia's brother, I was sort of much more interested in as a character than Michael. Oh, Filippo. Yeah. Very, I think it was very good. Ian Bannon. Mm. And, but what about Michael? Because he basically goes through three women in one week yeah. in that street. Yeah. Starts off with Gladys. Yeah. Uh, who's a bit saucy anyway. Yeah. Filippo's fiance. And then there's the woman with blonde hair. Well, they've all got blonde hair. That he... Uh, decides or he announces he's going to kind of pursue, then at some point he and Julia end up falling in love somehow. Yeah. I missed that moment, though. There's a moment on the street where they suddenly kiss and that's kind of the first you've seen of it actually being a mutual attraction. And that's quite near the end. And in the midst of this, there's really just a lot of people on the street seemingly warning every young woman not to go anywhere near Michael. He just doesn't seem to have a very good reputation at all. His reputation has preceded him all the way from Moorgate. <laughs> yes. Should we talk about your professional interest in the, <laughs> in the, uh, in the subject matter, the religious aspect of mm. it? I mean, it doesn't strike me as a particularly religious film, but it, I mean, I think the idea is there's undercurrents of godliness running yeah. through it. Is that something that you... I think it's, it's interesting because the, the Italian family, uh, Julia's family, are, are depicted as going to church and that's a very big part of their life. We're in, to go into the professional terminology, pre-Vatican II Catholicism, so they go to Mass and it's in Latin and it's, it's very traditional. And I know that even now... Um, not quite in Soho, but in Hoban, there is an Italian Catholic church that probably looks exactly like that church depicted in the film. So that's that's realistic. And I think Julia's faith is very clear. She's she's depicted a number of times fervently praying for different things, whether it's her brother or Michael or the decision over whether or not to go to Canada. Please bring him back to me. Please. 
and so that's something I, I like because it seems to be everyday normal Catholicism from that era. That makes sense to me culturally. And then you've also got the postman who's a member of the Salvation Army, which... This is Mr Bishop played by Cyril Cusack. Yes. I have to say, I did... When I realised his surname was Bishop, I had to grin because so is the surname of TV's famous Salvation Army man from Neighbours, Harold Bishop. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's not that many depictions of people from Salvation Army in media. No. Um, But the the thing that saddened me a little bit about that is I think he's played a bit too stereotypically evangelical, sort of like being on the street, saying worthy things, um, being a bit judging. He's quite snide, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Whereas my personal opinion of the the Salvation Army would be that they would be more social action and social justice related, like doing really good stuff um, with people who probably also lived in Soho at that time. But he is kind of, he's a little bit comic relief almost. It's not quite sort of banging a tambourine yeah, I don't think we dislike him as a character. No. I think initially, he's a sort of busybody in the pub. Yeah. He orders a pint and then puts it out of reach so he can't drink it. Well, Salvation Army is teetotal. So yeah. Quite, uh, yeah. Maybe he was demonstrating the ability to resist. Was he in the pub to spy on the kind of terrible... It seemed a very respectable pub to me. I mean, yeah. I've been in much worse <laughs> pubs than that. I read somewhere in an old review from the 50s that he is a kind of Greek chorus. Uh-huh. He comments on the... I almost feel like they could have utilised him better as a character and as a presence if he was in the background of lots of scenes, just yeah. not saying anything, just just there. Yeah. Interacting with people when he is, you know, actually there as as the postman or, or whichever uniform he's wearing at the time. But to have him hovering around the background might be quite a nice technique. But there, there wasn't that sort of kind of supernatural elements of the film at all, apart no. from the miracle that happens at the end that we can't talk about. Yeah. I mean, he he has a little bit of a character arc, but not, a, you know, it's mo- it seems to be mostly in the last 10 minutes of the film that suddenly you, there's a little subplot involving him and Julia. But there's not really anything to really connect him with the main part of the story. He just seems to be another person on the street. And I don't know whether it was deliberately done to have that kind of contrast between Catholicism and Protestant churches and different attitudes to miracles, perhaps. Oh, Mr Morgan, I believe you know everybody. That's right. Uh, General, is it? An unear lip, young man. This is God's uniform. It's a pity you don't wear it. I will have no ear for music. Michael Morgan, can you deny that you're a poor sinner? Well, um... Well, it wouldn't mean much to be a saint if everybody was one, would it? No, no, that's true. So what? Well, it's a matter affecting these two young ladies. Now, they come from a good home, not like you. How do you know? Well, you're never in it. You practice what you preach. I'm here for a special purpose. I don't spend my nights running around after different women. I believe you. The attitude to miracles in the film is slightly confused as well. Yeah. Because... Forgive my, um, this is why you're here as a, as a, as a religious expert. <laughs> I was under the impression that the Catholics are in charge of who becomes a saint and what constitutes a miracle, but that's not, not necessarily the case. Not exactly. I mean, the path to sainthood lies with the, the Roman Catholic Church as it currently stands. So there are, there are four routes to becoming a saint. And an element of that uh, relates to miracles. 
So if miracles can be attributed to somebody, that is part of the evidence for them becoming a saint. But not all saints have to have performed a miracle or okay. have miracles attributed okay. to Okay. I thought it was something like you need to have done at least three miracles. Or... No, um, it depends on the categories. I had to do some research on this just recently because we had All Saints Day just at the beginning of November. So one of the routes is martyrdom. You don't need to have performed a miracle dying for the faith. Okay. It's enough giving your life. Uh, so that somebody else might live as, a, as another route, a recently added route. Oh, so a member of the armed forces could be deemed to be a saint in that case. If uh... Yeah, it's slightly more complicated than that. There's there's a still a religious element to it, but you don't have to have performed a miracle. You don't okay. have to have miracles ascribed to you in order to become a saint. But all Christian denominations would believe in miracles and would say that miracles happen. Also, miracles can happen without a saint being involved. Okay, yeah, because the miracles that, um, I mean, from my childhood, my grandma was off and off to Lourdes and Walsing and places yeah. like this. Miracles took place there or were they just yeah. appearances? By... It depends on your theology. I mean, I would say a miracle is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you believe that God is omnipresent, then they can happen anywhere and at any time. And I think what you see in this film is an interesting example of praying so that, you know, the, the lane is dedicated to St. Anthony. We see Julia praying at a shrine dedicated to St. Anthony in the church, a church which I suspect is also dedicated to St. Anthony. And she is praying to the saint, which as a Protestant I find odd because all of my prayers would still be directed to God. I wouldn't go down the praying to saints route. And she, I'd be interested to know who she was thanking for the miracle by the end of the film, whether it be St. Anthony or whether it was God or both. As someone who was brought up in the Catholic faith, I would say we share out the credit <laughs> to uh, St. Anthony. Well, St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost things. Lost things, yeah. And when we were chatting before, you said lost objects. And, I, and I, it struck me as slightly different from the way that I... And I think we used to say lost things because the miracle in this film is... Is not a thing. Is not a thing. It's the fact that I think the miracle is that Michael... Gives up his um, roving Lothario ways yeah. through the power of love, and he is the lost thing that Saint Anthony puts back yeah. on the right track. Yeah, theologically speaking, is it just like full of massive holes? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think the word miracle is overused. I mean, generally, I and mean, not even just in this film, I wouldn't really describe what happens in the film as a miracle. Okay, I think it's a very nice thing to have occurred. I definitely don't consider the event at the end to be a miracle. Okay. It has too many negative consequences to outweigh the, yes. the one positive for Julia. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I do think there's a tendency to kind of attribute things as miracles when they're just kind of good fortune. Because you know, actually, when you when you first emailed me about the film, having not seen it, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder what the miracle's going to be. And I was thinking about, you know, something really staggering that happened. In fact, because it was it was Pressburger, I was thinking about a matter of life and death. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, there's a miracle in that because he doesn't die and then there's a whole thing with heaven and that's really amazingly done. This is clearly going to be some kind of really interesting moral tale. And then I was like, oh, okay, it's a not not a massive miracle. No. <laughs> to put it into the context of the filmmakers, it's Emmerich Pressburger's first film after his split with Michael Powell. Yeah. And obviously their partnership was, they produced some incredible films. Michael Powell went on, his, Michael Powell's first film was Peeping Tom, which is a very different type of film from this, and a better film, I think. 
much better film. What am I saying? It's a far better film. Do you feel that Pressburger sort of let himself down? I mean, is he is he just sort of come out? Is it like coming out the Beatles and then flopping and you, with your first single? It's interesting because I wonder what his motivation was and whether whether he was seeking to make something that was. It's sort of a feel-good 1950s film. And I can imagine with his Hungarian-Jewish background, you know, you've had the Second World War, you've had the Holocaust. Maybe he's saying a partnership with Arthur Rank as a way of just creating something that's uplifting for the times rather than trying to create an amazing work of art. I do think it's interesting that this still has a religious connotation. Um... Pound Pressburger made one of my favourite religious films, the, the scariest depiction of nuns in a non-horror film you've ever seen in, in Black Narcissus. Um, and that's got amazing theological undertones. And this, to me, just seems like, you know, he liked the story, obviously, um, and maybe he thought that it was exactly what 1950s Britain needed to watch. But it just, maybe he just misjudged it. Maybe he was kind of stuck in a an earlier era that wasn't quite where they were by the time they were able to make the film. Would you recommend the film to your parishioners? Well, it's funny, we have a, a film club once a month. I, do you know, I thought you might have a film yeah. club at your church. No, it was running before I arrived at the church. Oh, was it? Okay. Uh, it's a very happy accident. And I don't usually get to choose the films. But actually, it's the kind of film which I imagine they might enjoy. What have been other films in the... Uh... Oh, they tend to be really long. They had Lawrence of Arabia earlier right, in the okay. year. Lawrence of Arabia, and then they had Meet Joe Black two months ago. Right. Yeah. It's it's diverse. They're very different. Diverse. <laughs> so you could you could offer it. Yeah. So I, yeah. No, I will. Do. But I think it's an interesting one because you could have it's the kind of thing you could have quite an interesting theological conversation about if you wanted to then go in and talk about what a miracle is. There's something to be said about uh, a film that depicts a particular neighbourhood of London, particularly that you know the thing that the film's meant to be highlighting is the diversity of that neighbourhood, and I'm a priest in a very diverse bit of North London. So that's a selling point. Is there any parts of London that aren't diverse anymore? I mean, everywhere's diverse, isn't it's it? It's true. I think I think my bit seems to be particularly diverse. Okay. Oh, I have a, I have a church congregation that's predominantly non-white. What, what kind of countries do they come from, your parishioners? Uh, so I've got a lot of West African, Caribbean, all different islands, Montserrat, Antigua, Barbados, Jamaica, South Korea, Poland, Hong Kong, uh there's there's three white British members of my congregation. Wow. Yeah. So if you do show Miracle of Soho to your parishioners in a, a film club, mm. I hope it's good to get an invitation to uh, yeah, the evening. Yeah, you could come and do, an, <laughs> do, a, do a welcome welcome introduction. Oh, well, I'd, yeah, do a, do a follow-up actually to this on the podcast as well. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for coming in and um, and lending your uh, professional and, uh, <laughs> and personal expertise. Well, thank you. No, thank you, Liz, for coming in. It was a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to my invitation to the Emmanuel Church Film Club screening of Miracle in Soho sometime soon. If you'd like to find out more about Liz, you can visit her very entertaining website, lizclutterbook.com, or follow her on Twitter, at Liz Clutterbook. And my thanks again to Alex Hester for reminiscing about his dad, and also to Dave Gleeson of the Soho Society, who allowed us at the very last minute to use the church to record the interview with Alex. And finally, thank you to Stephen Ventura for providing the voice of John Hester. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in the show, 
Or if you'd like to suggest a Soho film for us to talk about, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're on at BitesSoho. Or you can email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And for information about the guests and films from any of the episodes so far, head over to SohoBitesPodcast.com. The next episode of Soho Bites is all about jazz. Nice. I'll be finding out what it's like to perform at the most famous jazz venue in the world, a little place called Ronnie Scott's. And Jessica Martin makes a return visit to the pod to talk about the only jazz film based on the story of Othello, which features both Richard Attenborough and Chaz and Dave. From 1962, it's all night long. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingen Young. You can follow Jingen and her new research project on Twitter at Cities in Cinema. That's it for this episode. See you next time. 